Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast across the fences. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host. Today, we talk about Epiphany, especially the visit of the wise men to Jesus in Bethlehem. There's a lot going on in the story, and we kind of walk through it in the whole episode. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. God's peace be with you. Hey, good afternoon. Happy Oh, blessed Epiphany, January 6th today, the day of the Epiphany, 12 days of Christmas are over, and now we have the visit of the wise men to the boy Jesus, and the celebration of that is what we call the Feast of Epiphany, that is today. Thanks for joining me, this is Cross Defense that you're listening to, and I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church both in Austin, Texas, broadcasting live this Monday afternoon from the Tower Studio here at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Austin, Texas. And we're going to talk about Epiphany and what it means. Now, now I want you to imagine, to see if we can paint the picture here, see if we can get the scene in your mind, because it is an amazing thing. Just imagine that you're out at night. You live in a small town. You know your neighbors. Uh, you know everyone around you, and you're out walking the dog, you and and your family, and you turn a couple corners and you go down the street and there's a house that you recognize, a new family that's moved into town. And outside, you see this strange sight. I mean, you see that there's obviously some, some sort of company that's at their house. You can see how they got there, these really expensive transports. And there's, it looks like they have servants drivers and people that, that brought that, that, that there's a, some real fancy people that have come to visit this house. Now, your neighborhood's not that nice. I mean, you kind of a fairly small house, and this, this particular street has some of the smallest and, and sort of most run-down houses. So you normally don't see transportation that nice around here. You certainly don't see, like, limousine driver kind of dressed folks there. You wonder what is going on. In fact, you, as you get closer, it looks like there's guards standing outside the door. It must be that it's it's almost like there's some sort of celebrity or kind of or royalty that are visiting this neighbor of yours. And so you walk you walk by. You can't the most curious thing that you you've ever seen. So you walk and you want to you're kind of straining your neck to figure out what's happening in this house. Until finally you're able to get a glimpse through the window and in the lights of the living room, you see this strangest of sights. There's three people. They're obviously some sort of wealthiness. I mean, maybe they're royalty. Maybe they're celebrities. Maybe they're kind of political. They're dressed to the T. I mean, just the wealth is sort of hanging off of them. And and these three men, these three something wealthy men are there on their knees with their face to the ground in front of this little baby being held in the lap of her mother. So here's this baby, maybe months old, maybe weeks old, maybe days old, and this, this mom there dressed in casual clothes holding this baby, and these three guys are on their face worshiping the child. Now, that is crazy, and that is epiphany. 
And that is the scene that the Holy Spirit puts before us in Matthew chapter 2 with the visit of the wise men. And that's what we want to talk about. Luther, I think Luther loved, you can kind of tell when you read the, through the sermons of Luther when he gets really excited about a text and he really likes to preach a text. And if you read multiple sermons on multiple te- on the same text, you can kind of see what he, he points out. And this is, I think, one of his favorite things to talk about. And, and, and he says, can you imagine the people of Bethlehem walking by the house and seeing these wise men on their face worshiping the child? He says, what great fools they would have seemed like to the whole rest of the world. What great fools. And yet we know that these wise men, these three magi from the East, have spiritual insight and wisdom that we need. In fact, that's why the Scripture tells us about them. They are our examples. So let's get started, shall we? Matthew chapter 2. If you're, if you're driving, don't stop driving. If you are not driving and you have their Bible hanging around, why not open it? Follow along. I've got, I've got mine here. I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, I want to confess to you right at the beginning that there's a lot of things about this text that I do not understand and that really, to put it frankly, nobody understands. There's a lot of, there's a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot, for example, how in the world did these magi know that they should look for a particular star to rise in the east? Now, there was, there was a, a couple of things going on in the ancient world that would that give us little clues. There was the prophecy of the ruler from Judea, uh, that had traveled around the world, but especially in Rome. But it seems like these guys coming from the east might have had, they might have been tipped off to this from Daniel. Now, my best guess, and this is just a guess, and if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. There's no, no skin off my back on this. But my best guess of what's going on here is that Daniel, who was the great prophet over in Persia, in Babylon, started a university which was studying the scriptures and Daniel the prophet had a particular insight for these particular people, and that was held in store until it was fulfilled. So that these wise men were the inheritors of the wisdom of Daniel. And Daniel had given them this indication that the star would, uh, would arise and would point to the birth of the Messiah. So this is happening in Bethlehem. Now we think this happened, you know, a few days or a few uh, weeks after the birth of Jesus, maybe a few months. We're going to talk about why in a few minutes. But but at the Holy Family, Jesus, remember, was Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. They went down to Bethlehem for the for the census that was being taken. And Jesus was born down there in Bethlehem, a little town six miles in the hills south of Jerusalem, close by, the city of David, where David was born. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it seems like they stayed there. They settled in. They got a house because when the wise men come, they don't come to the manger, they come, they come to the house. So they found some sort of more permanent arrangements there in Bethlehem. And maybe they were just going to stay there. We don't know exactly. But, they, but it happens now there in, 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 uh, while the Holy Family is settled into a house that some kind of star rises in the east. And these wise men see it and understand that this is an indication that the Messiah was born. 
the one who would be born king of the Jews. So they came from the east to the west, traveling across the desert there. And they probably traveled up the Euphrates River and then kind of down the King's Highway and then over and across. If you went straight from Babylon and you just went straight west into Jerusalem, you end up in the kind of desert that causes your horse to forget its name. I mean, that is desolate out there. So you got to travel up the river and then and then down, and they come where anyone doing this kind of errand would come. They come to Jerusalem. That's the capital city. I mean, Bethlehem, we got to remember that Bethlehem is, is the sticks. I mean, Bethlehem is the, we think of it as a suburb of Jerusalem, but it's, it's a particularly humble place. I mean, Bethlehem is so lowly that, that Micah, when he prophesied that Jesus was the Messiah is going to be born there. He says, look, you're nothing amongst all the clan of Judah. If you just list the great cities of Judah, the last one, the last one that you would pick would be Bethlehem. I mean, it's a tiny little town. So they don't go to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem. And they start asking around in Jerusalem. I'm picking up now with verse 2. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, we want to hone in on that title, King of the Jews, because a lot of the drama that's going to unfold here between the wise men and Herod is going to be around that title, King of the Jews, because that title is what Herod had been given. Now, we want to remember that basically the entire Mediterranean was ruled at this time by the Romans, and the Romans had different arrangements to rule in all these different places. Normally, they ruled their their um, their lands through governorships, but sometimes they had kings that were there, and that was the case in Israel. They had this fellow Herod, sometimes called Herod the Great, and I suppose he was. I mean, he was a very significant fellow. He was, he was an utterly wicked guy. I mean, he Herod was so bad that, well, what's the worst thing that he did? I mean, he killed a bunch of his kids and a bunch of his wives, and I mean, anyone who smelled like they were going to make a run at being king, he would snuff out. Uh, I mean, it was a mess. Uh, what was the worst thing he did? Let's see. He, Herod, ah, yeah, he, he had instructions left uh, that when he died, that all the rulers of Jerusalem, like all the chief rabbis and, and the Pharisees, the people that, that were loved and, uh, by the Jews in Jerusalem, that they were all to be rounded up in the Colosseum or in the, in the theater and killed. Because because Herod knew that when he died, nobody was going to be sad about that. In fact, probably most people were going to be happy about it. So he wanted people to mourn on the occasion of his death, so he was going to have them kill all these other people that the people loved. That's the kind of guy Herod was. Now, it looks like that didn't actually happen. But Herod also had a brilliant streak to him, and he was a master builder. The, remember the temple that was there when Jesus says, tear down the temple and I'll build it up in three days? That was the temple that Herod had constructed, and he was known for his buildings. He built cities and, and fortresses and castles and, and aqueducts and all sorts of crazy things. In fact, I, I heard someone say that when you go and visit Israel, you see the places where Jesus walked and the places where Herod slept. Because, you know, Jesus didn't build anything, but Herod built all this sort of stuff. So you go to, what, you go down to Caesarea, you see a bunch of Herod stuff. In Jerusalem, there's Herod stuff. Even the, uh, uh, up in the north, down at Masada, all around, there's castles that Herod was building and all this sort of stuff. 
So they go, and, and Herod had been put there. His father, it looks like his father was an Edomite. He came from an, from, he was a descendant of Esau, an Edomite family, but he had fought, his father had fought um, first against and then with the Romans and had inherited, if I remember my history correct, he had inherited a pretty good inheritance, and then his son grew up in Rome, and, and he placed him over all of this region so that Herod the Great was put there as the king of all of you know, Israel, the northern and the southern tribes, Galilee in the north and Samaria and Judea, the whole thing. Herod had been placed over there by the Romans, and the Romans had given Herod the title King of the Jews. Now, so And, and he would wear that with some sort of ironic joy. He was the King of the Jews. So you have to, you have to imagine that when these wise men came from the east inquiring where is the one just born who is the king of the Jews that that would have to give Herod some pause hey wait 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 king of the Jews that's me and I was born a long time ago but these wise men come uh, looking for the one who was just born now this gives us the fact that it, well let's go on to read another verse because there's some history that's really interesting here where is he who is born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now this indicates the fact that Herod was troubled and that all Jerusalem was troubled are indications to us that there was probably a lot of people that came with these wise men. Now the tradition is three. In fact, they're named in some, I think you go Orthodox or <clears throat> Catholic tradition and look back on it. You can figure out what their names are. I might. I might try to do that during the break, but but people have wisely pointed out, hey, it, the Bible never says that there were three of them. Now, I think that there were three, and the reason is because, can you imagine being the fourth wise man who didn't have any gifts to give? One guy gives gold and frankincense and then myrrh, and then you're standing there saying, well, you know, I got some discount coupons for McDonald's. What, you know, No, no, I mean, if you're coming to visit Jesus, you're going to bring gifts so I think that there were probably three of these wise men who came, but they would have been accompanied with a massive entourage. In fact, in the epistle, or sorry, in the Old Testament text, which promises this, it talks about, it, it, this is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. It says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So that there's so many uh, that, the, that the scriptures can talk about Jerusalem being covered with camels so that they come, the three of them come with this huge entourage, no doubt servants, bodyguards, camel looker afterers, gold protectors, and all this sort of stuff. And they would have come equipped for the journey, which means they would have come equipped also for battle and protection. Now Herod had spent the last 10, 20 years doing battle with Persia. And so to see a big group coming across and, and, and filling the city of Jerusalem has to cause him a little bit of consternation. What are you guys doing here? And what are you asking about this business of the king of the Jews? But, verse 4, Herod assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod knows, and interestingly enough, that if they're asking for the king of the Jews, they're asking for the Christ. In fact, th this is going to give us a little indication 
about how Herod knows that his own title, King of the Jews, is a bit of a sham and a cover, and that he doesn't rightly, uh, he, he doesn't, he is not the heir, the rightful heir of that title, the King of the Jews. So he calls together the scribes, all these guys are sitting around Jerusalem, and says, where's the, where's the Messiah, where's the Christ supposed to be born? And they quote the text, they tell him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now there's a lot going on in the prophecy, but we're, gonna, we're starting to see here three different, well, this might be the way we, we conclude this show by talking about this, but we're starting to see three different ways of thinking of Jesus. We've got the Herod way, we've got the scribe way, and we've got the wise men way. But before that, we want to see that even though the star had indicated the birth, it's going to take the scriptures. It's going to take the word of God for the wise men really to find where Jesus is. Well, well, we'll pick up there on the other side of the break. We've got to take a quick break here. you listen to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We'll go to break, and we'll be right back talking about Epiphany and the visit of the wise men to the boy, to the baby Jesus. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. A reading from St. Matthew, chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Better cross defense got me in the middle of a bite there. It was nice to hear. Is that Pastor Marcus Zill, I think, reading the Christmas stories? That's great to hear that. We're talking about it. He's behind the times, though. We're talking about Epiphany today. The visit of the wise men to the boy Jesus. And we've gotten as far as Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, they're down in Bethlehem, six miles away. But the wise men have come. They're bearing their gifts, their camels, their entourage. They've come to Jerusalem. They've found King Herod. They've said, hey, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod says, who are you looking at, buddy? 
But he goes to the scribes and says, hey, where is the Christ supposed to be born again? Didn't the Bible say something about that? And they go to the text, Malachi, or not Malachi, Micah, excuse me. O you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, some people, this is a mystery. I think some people make a big deal out of this, that this text is quoted by the scribes is different than the text preached by the prophet. Micah says, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are the least of the rulers of Judah. But here it says, You are not, not the least of the rulers of Judah, so why change it from the least to the not least? And some people have said, Well, it's because it's promised here. That this promise itself changes the status of Bethlehem from the smallest to the greatest, because out of Bethlehem will come the Messiah. Anyway, it's not too much trouble just to say, well, the scribes, while getting the city right, got the promise wrong, but they couldn't stand the idea of the Messiah coming in humility, which is what he wants to do. But he will come, and he will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He will, he will stand and shepherd his flock, it says in the prophecy in Micah, and I'm pretty sure that's a promise of the resurrection. He will stand and shepherd my people so they're going to go to, to Bethlehem, but then watch what happens here. This is going to be a trick. Herod's going to summon the wise men secretly. And he ascertained, I'm reading in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 now. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child... And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, Herod is obviously lying. I mean, Herod wants to know about this baby so that he can wipe this baby out. And his intention will become clear in the text. But what is amazing to me is that he was such a a good and deceptive liar that he was able to dupe, at least for the time, these wise men, that they thought that Herod also would come and worship the baby. They have to be warned by the angel not to go back to him. Now that probably, maybe more than anything else that we read in the history, tells us about the duplicity and the, um, the deceptiveness of Herod. I want to come and worship him. After listening, verse nine. Now, now I want. To, I, well, I want to get to this later, but maybe just to pick up this point because we. How do we set this up here? We we normally think of people as as one of two things: either you believe in Jesus and trust in Him and are a Christian, or you don't believe in Jesus and therefore you are. And a non-Christian and an unbeliever and so forth. As if there's the, these are the two, the two chief categories, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not, and those who believe in Jesus are all Christians. Now that is just not the case from the Scriptures. The Bible will over and over tell us about people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who believe that Jesus is who he said he is, or who saw Jesus perform miracles and knew that he was God in the flesh, or at least a great prophet, and still did not trust in him, and still did not believe in him. Now, it could be that Herod has 
doesn't believe what they're saying about the one born king of the Jews. Herod just is so paranoid that if anybody even has the title king of the Jews without any claim to it, then they're, they have to be destroyed. I mean, Herod's going to wipe you out if he thinks you're strong enough to to take his throne or not. He's just that kind of bloodthirsty monster. But But still, this idea that Herod could say, hey, that guy, that's the king of the Jews. Hey, that guy, that's the Christ. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to fight against him. I'm going to oppose him. We have to come to grips with this as, as Christians, that there are people who believe in Jesus and do not follow him, people who believe that Jesus is God and do not trust in him, people who believe that God is the creator of the world and do not follow him. There is the, there is the category of, re, of rebel. It's the category of the devil who believes in God and shudders, and that's what the devil is in some ways after. When we're dealing with people, you, you get what I'm saying here? When we're talking with people about believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus, we just th simply think, well, if you don't believe, if you if you believe in God, then you'll want to follow him. If you believe in God, then you'll want to worship him. If you trust in Jesus, if you know about Jesus, then you'll want to trust in him. And that is not the case. There's there are people, lots and lots of people who believe that Jesus is God, who believe that God created the world and simply don't care or are in open rebellion against God. That's the, that's the case here with Herod. So he wants the wise men to go find, do all the legwork, find this guy who's claimed to be the Christ, come back and tell him, and then Herod, in his pretense to worship, will go down to destroy him. So to pick up in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now this is an amazing thing. And again, I told you about how Luther loved to preach about this. This is another one of these great points that Luther likes to preach on. He says, it took the word to reveal to them where the Christ was. The Lord was not pleased simply to take the star and like a ancient GPS system, if, you know, turn left at the King's Highway go right over the Jordan River to continue through traffic circle in Jericho or whatever to take them all the way down to Bethlehem. No, he, he, the Lord uh, is going to send them to Bethlehem by the word. And that for us is important. We find Christ through the word. And when we go looking for, for Jesus apart from God's word, when we go looking for Jesus apart from God's promises, when we go looking for Jesus apart from the revelation of Jesus that's given to us in the prophets and most especially in the apostles, then we find the wrong guy. We go to the wrong place. It's like looking for love, looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. The Word. The Word, the Word, the Word is the sign that points us to Christ. The only one, the only way to find the only way. So, the Bethlehem. Once they believe Bethlehem, then all of a sudden the star appears. Now, it seems like, to me, in my reading of the text, that the star is very different on this side of the Bethlehem promise than it was on the other side. It seems like the star just arose first, almost like an astronomical sign, some sort of 
star that wasn't there uh, suddenly appears somewhere in the heavens and they realize ah, that's the one that's the one that daniel was talking about that's the promised one let's go see what's going on but now the star seems to be able to lead them in fact very specifically it says it leads them it moves and then stops it's we, we know that because it says it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was so that it goes and they chase after it and then it stops and it stops where right over the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are and look at what it says verse 10 when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy now there's a lot of ways that Matthew could have indicated that to us he could have just said they rejoiced but he doesn't he said they rejoiced exceedingly and he could have just said that they rejoiced exceedingly but he doesn't he says they rejoiced exceedingly with joy and and he could have just said that but he doesn't he said they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy there's joy 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 it's a quadruple joy it's a magnified joy when they see the star they are uh, simply beside themselves now th this is true also then for us because everybody can go to the scriptures and read the scriptures but when the day star dawns in our heart when the Holy Spirit causes the scales to fall and the veil to be pulled back and we see in the scripture the promise of the gospel and the goodness of God for us in Christ then we too are almost overwhelmed with the joy of it all that the Lord could look at us in our sin and look at us in our rebellion look at us in our enmity towards God and each other and instead of casting us off come and have mercy on us coming all the way into our sin and into our flesh and into our suffering to to die for us to give us life then there's a joy there that just can't be tamped down the Christian life is a life marked with joy now that's the problem with that is that you know we hear that like law because we always we don't turn everything into the law and we're like well now I need to be more joyful if I want to be a Christian well okay fine but joy is always a fruit it's always the symptom it's always the result you don't you go if you shoot at joy you never hit it it's one of those things I mean you shoot at happiness you never hit the target if you it's like shooting at authenticity you never get it or trying to strive for humility you never achieve it it's a, it's always the fruit it's always goes from shooting something else joy and so that if you want to hit the target of joy you don't aim at joy you aim at Christ or better you know that Christ aims at you you know that the forgiveness of sins is for you. You know that the blood of Jesus is for you. You know that his death and resurrection is for you. We're just, um, we've been looking at some old paintings, and one of, the, one of the old paintings of the Reformation is this guy, Lucas Cronach, and he, he loved to do this. He would have a, a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus, and then he would have coming from the side of Jesus this little stream of blood, and it would defying gravity and every other sort of logical scientific thing this little stream of blood would fly through the air and land on 
his head. There's Cronach. He paints himself into the picture, and he puts the blood of Jesus on him. I mean, that's the joy that that knows that in spite of everything that I've done, in spite of every good that I've failed to do, in spite of my own self and my being born and conceived in sin and born in iniquity and and by nature a child of wrath, that the Lord Jesus has has wrangled away from me my sin and my death and my suffering and has called me to be his own child and given his himself his own life in my place that, and that that is true that and and that nothing can take it that that is what's going on here when the when the star comes out for the wise men there's they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy now there's something and i don't know what this is but there's something strange in our culture even in the christian culture that wants to say that, how does this go? That if you're serious about something, it means that you're grumpy about it. <laughs> that joy and seriousness do not go together. Now believe me, these wise men were most serious about that which gave them the most joy, finding this child. Now I say that because I want you to know that it's okay to be happy. <laughs> I want you to know that it's okay to be joyful. It's okay to smile and to laugh when you think of the good things that God has done for you in Christ. It's okay. And you'll be in good company, these wise men. So they laugh at the star and they dance their way to Bethlehem and they find the house, the star's right over the house. And verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Now you say, hey, hey, Pastor Wolfmuller, does that word worship really mean worship? And the answer is yes, it means worship. Remember when the devil comes to tempt Jesus and says, fall down and worship me? Same word. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Same word. Worship here means worship. When the disciples appear to find Jesus on the mountain, Matthew 28, after he uh, rose from the dead and is about to ascend into heaven, it says they fell down and worshipped him. Same word. And the Gospel of Matthew then begins by these, begins and ends with these, this picture of, of men falling down on their face and worshipping Jesus. <laughs> I want to tell you guys about the, I think the very good conversation that I have with the Jehovah's Witnesses the last couple of Saturdays that have come to the house, and the conversation has been just on this point, and I think that's where it needs to be and where it should be, is this question, I, I worship Jesus, is that idolatry? Because that's what these wise men do. They fall down on their knees and they worship Jesus. Th th this is what it means to be a Christian. I mean, you could, there's a lot of ways to answer the question. If someone says, hey, you're a Christian, what does that mean? But here's one of the simplest ways. You can simply say, I worship Jesus. I worship Jesus and I trust him.
and they opened their gifts. This is, oh, same verse. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they depart to their own country by another way. Well, there's the text. There's been a lot made out of these gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and how they fit together with the threefold office of Jesus, the king for the gold, the frankincense, that's what you burn in the altar, that's for the priest and the prophet, or maybe for Jesus' death, the myrrh, that's what you anoint the body with when it's buried, and maybe there's something there. The gifts of the wise men are how the Holy Family is able to finance their trip to Egypt and back. Doesn't seem like Joseph had a lot before that, and so that is helpful on their way. But the key thing is this fact of worship. We'll come back to that. We've got to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Short break, and we'll be back finishing up this meditation on the Epiphany and the visit of the wise men to the boy Jesus in his house there in Bethlehem. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Short break. We'll be right back. From the I'm Gary, matching it with only a desk, chair, and foam mattress in our brand new fourth floor apartment, which looks down on the mighty Congo River in downtown Brazzaville, Congo. And I'm Steph. Only 36 hours after arriving in Brazzaville with Gary, I flew out to the Czech Republic via Ethiopia and Austria for a week-long conference on short-term mission teams. Please pray that our household goods would be released from customs at the port before the new year. And also, please pray that the Lord would bless us as we establish new friendships in this Central African nation. And have a wonderful Christ-filled Christmas and a blessed, happy new year. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, broadcasting live this Epiphany afternoon from the Tower Studio, St. Paul Lutheran Church, Austin, Texas. Come visit us when you're hanging around Texas. It's great. Uh, you can come see the Tower Studio, which is about to be equipped with shelves, with bookshelves tomorrow. That'll be exciting. Anyhow, we're talking about the Epiphany, which means we're talking about the visit of the wise men to the boy Jesus in his home there settled with his family at least very temporarily in Bethlehem and they come and they find him the star resting on the house and they come into the house and they worship him if you if you were if you've been with us for the whole hour that's how we started with this picture you're walking your dog by the house and here are these rich well-to-do politically connected types down on their face before Jesus. 
And this text, perhaps, I mean, all the gospel texts, really, are always putting before us this question, but this one may be better than some of the other ones, and that is, that what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, Jesus asked his disciples when he traveled with them up to Caesarea Philippi, he says, who do people say that I am? And then Peter answers, some say, John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say, Elijah, one of the pro Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, who do you, who do you say that I am? This question, what? What do you make of Jesus? This is the question. I don't know. It's the question that matters most of all. Now this text gives us three options. You got the Herod option, you got the scribe option, and you got the magi option. Maybe that we'll start with the with the scribe option, because I think that is the option that most people choose, and that is the option of indifference. I mean, it's amazing to me. Now think about this. I mean, Bethlehem and and Jerusalem are six miles from each other. I mean, I drive three times that just to get to work every day. You Six miles is contained in even a normal size city. It's not that far. It's not that long of a walk. You can get there in the morning, and the wise men are going anyway. And so here come these wise men from the east. They say that they've seen a star indicating that the Christ was born. They ask where he's to be born, and these guys know. They're sitting there, sitting around the temple in Jerusalem, and they say, and they say, Bethlehem. And the wise men say, well, okay, well, that's where we're headed. And they say, okay, well, have fun. Break a leg. Let us know how it goes. <laughs> they couldn't even send one down to visit. I mean, remember when John the Baptist is preaching down by Jericho? I mean, that's, I don't know, that's a ways away. That's a couple days journey to get down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a long ways. I mean, you're going all the way down the mountain, all the way down to the valley there. And they were all going out to see what's going on. But now they couldn't send one to go and investigate, not even one of them. Maybe there's something there. But, you know, even if not, he would just walk down the street a little ways and walk back. It's not even that much trouble. And yet they don't. They don't go fall. They are indifferent. Now, I was reading today. I bet I can find it. I was reading today in the large catechism where Martin Luther is unfolding. Oh, he's unfolding the doctrine of the commandments and the creed and everything else in there. And he's talking about the third commandment. And in the third commandment, he talks about this ancient spiritual affliction called Acedia. We, we sometimes translate it tuper or sloth. When you talk about the seven de deadly sins and you talk about the sin of sloth or laziness, it's acedia is the, well, I guess that would be the Greek for it. I think they just take it from Greek into Latin too. And listen to what Luther says. He says, those fastidious spirits are to be reproved who... When they have heard a sermon or two, find it tedious and dull 
thinking that they know all that well enough and need no more instruction. For just that is the sin which has been hitherto reckoned among mortal sins and is called acedia, or tuper, or satiety, a malignant, dangerous plague with which the devil bewitches and deceives the hearts of many that he may surprise us and secretly withdraw God's word from us. In other words, there's a spiritual affliction of indifference or or boredom. Yeah, I know all that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, Christmas, birth of Jesus, death of Jesus, old hat. I got better things to do. I mean, it's astonishing that the hope of the nations and the glory of Israel has been born six miles down the street from these scribes. And the wise men have come to tell them that the stars in the east and that they themselves, I mean, talk about condemning yourself with your own mouth. They themselves know the village where the Messiah is and they just can't be bothered. Can't be bothered. I was talking this morning with a friend of mine about the gospel, how the gospel means good news. And and the picture of the good news is like the, it's like the, the soldier who runs back from the battlefield to tell the people at home how the battle is going. And you have to imagine that here you are at home and you're, say your your grandma and your son and your grandson and have have gone over the hill to to fight and they're fighting the army and you hear the sounds of battle maybe you even smell the battle you see the smoke going up from the battle but you have no idea how it's go how it's going and what happens in that battle is what matters for you i mean if you're if your city wins the battle, then your loved ones are going to come back with the spoils of war. But if they lose, then over the horizon is coming the enemy, and you better head for the hills, or you're dead, or you're enslaved, or you're in trouble. And so the soldier, the battle's over, and the soldier, one soldier is dispatched, the one who can run the fastest, to run back and announce the news. And he can give good news or bad news, and that's what the word gospel is. Oyangelion, the good news, the good message that we've won. The battle is over, and we are the victors, and coming over the hill is the champion, the one who has destroyed sin and death for you. And he's coming back with the spoils of that victory. Now, that is incredible. Can you imagine how much that shapes the rest of your life and thinking? And my friend we were talking about, he says, yeah, but it doesn't matter much if you didn't know that you were in a battle. <laughs> if you didn't think that there was war, if you didn't know that there was any trouble, what does it matter? And that's how most people are. Most people hear the gospel and they simply respond with indifference. What does that matter to me? Most people hear the death of Jesus and they just couldn't be bothered. That's the scribes. And then there's the response of hatred. That's the Herod option. He, even, who knows if he believes or not, but he, it doesn't matter. He's out to destroy anyone who would take his throne. 
That's another way to react to this idea that there's a savior because uh, I know this happens all the time to me. People leave the church and they say, why? Why doesn't everyone believe this good news about Jesus, the, the forgiveness of sins? And I said, well, because to be happy about the forgiveness of sins means that you have to be honest about the presence of sin. <laughs> to be happy about the resurrection of Jesus means that you have to be honest about your own mortality. To be overjoyed with the with the proclamation of salvation means that you have to first admit that you need to be saved and most people simply won't have it and they defend their own self-righteousness with whatever it takes you know we have these warnings about don't get between a bear and a cubs and things like this don't get between a person and the delusion of their own self-righteousness don't get a don't get between a sinner and the case they're making of their own justification, don't dare get, that's the most dangerous place to be. Don't get between Herod and his throne. Don't get between a sinner and the delusion of their, of their goodness. And if you get in there, then, well, what does Herod do? He sends his armies to kill every child under three years old. It's all out war. And when the church struggles and wrestles with the animosity that we receive from the world, it should not be such a surprise. Jesus says, the world hated me before it hated you, because men love the darkness more than the light. They love to cling to their sin. We love to sit on our own thrones. And when Jesus comes along making the claim that he is Lord, he is also making the claim that we are not. And our sinful flesh just hates it. Hates it. So these are the two options of the flesh, the indifference or anger but there is a third way and the Holy Spirit puts that before us in the wise men who find the baby who see the star who rejoice who find the baby and who fall down and who worship him remember how the how we started with this picture of the wise men worshiping Jesus and you walk by and you say what great fools they are that's that's how Luther preached we have to look at these wise men and say what great fools but that foolishness of bowing down to worship Jesus is the greatest wisdom of all That, would, that which looks like the most utterly foolish and insane thing to do, to fall down on your face and worship a baby, is the highest of God's wisdom. Paul says that, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the Bible ends with this picture of the Lamb on the throne and all the saints gathered around, throwing their crowns on the ground and worshiping him who is and who was and who is to come. This is when we are Christian, and this, I, I even dare to say, is when we are the most human. It's when we worship Jesus, our Lord and our, our God and our Savior, our hope and our salvation and our friend. I told you that I've had the privilege of having a conversation with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who have come to the house the last couple of weeks. And, and the conversation, I think, rightly centers around this question. What would you do if you came into the house and saw the wise men bowing down and worshiping Jesus? <laughs> would you mock them as fools? Would you tell them, no, no, stand up. That's only the first creation of God the Father, and we don't worship Jesus. We worship only the Father through Jesus. Would you try to get them to stop? Or would you join them? Do you bow down next to them? Dear friends, I, th I think that's where you'll find me tonight. I'll be on my knees in front of Jesus to worship him and to receive from him his own body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and that's where we are to be found. Worshiping the Lord Jesus giving him all the honor and glory and delighting in his promises. Hey, thanks for listening to Cross the Fences. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'll talk to you again next week. More theological topics. God's peace be with you. You made it to the end. Oh, God be praised for that. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here. Thanks so much for being part of the fun with, uh, with Cross the Fence. I, the last couple of weeks have been great. Just walking through the text and rejoicing in the teaching and the wisdom that the Lord has for us there. I'd love to know what you think about it. You can get a hold of me anytime at the website wolfmuller.co. Hit the contact button and you can find a lot of other theology there as well. Thanks again for being part of the, part of the fun here on Cross Defense. We'll talk to you soon. God's peace be with you.